0: Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, we're in the book of consolation. We're hearing the good news of a new covenant. These are actually the last words we're going to hear about Jer- from Jeremiah for a little while, because when we move into our new space, we're going to do a small series on the church from Ephesians. And so these are going to be the last words of Jeremiah ringing in our ears for the next few weeks. I'm in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each say to his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray together. Lord, if this is true that in the new covenant you forgive iniquity and you don't remember sin, then there's a place in the covenant for us. There's a place for us to be gathered as your people, to experience this radical generosity, and to be called your people. I pray that we would hear that this morning. I pray that we would know that in our hearts and minds. Together as your church, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, God's story in the Bible of defeating sin and death, it begins with promises. God in the Bible, he is lavish with the promises that he gives to humanity. He tells Adam and Eve that you're going to have offspring, and through your offspring, the head of Satan will be crushed. He tells Abraham and Sarah that you're going to have offspring, and through your seed, the nations of the earth will be blessed. He tells Israel, when he gathers them as a people, that they will be as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation before God. All of these promises constitute the covenant. A covenant is simply terms of an agreement. It's an agreement that's being made between God and humanity, and it starts with these promises. It's where we get our word testament. For the Old and New Testaments, it's the covenant that God makes. In every instance, God, freely, by his own grace, he initiates the covenant. This is not man initiating with God. This is God initiating with man. And amazingly, in every case, God obligates himself to humanity. He gives us a promise that we can hold our creator to. You said this and we expect to see it be fulfilled. Well, here's how the first round of the former covenant went down. We get a little allusion to it in Jeremiah 31, but we know that when God brought Egypt out, brought Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, he said to them, on your own, you would never be able to reach me. On your own, you could not reach up to me, so I've initiated my relationship to you, and I've reached down to you. I love you. I've forgiven you. I want to give you the sign of circumcision that will be your badge of community membership. I want to give you the symbolism of the sacrificial system. I want to give you the Ten Commandments and my law so that you will know my will. I want you to follow me and obey me and find your life in me. This is what I want you to do, people of Israel. It was not a covenant of works, it was a covenant of grace. We know that, Paul says in Galatians, because salvation came before the law, right? God delivered the people out of Egypt first, he saved them, and then he gave them the law to say, in light of your salvation, this is how you live in your relationship with me. And yet, as Jeremiah reminds us in chapter 31, there were problems with Israel at Sinai Immediately, right away, God makes the covenant and Israel breaks the covenant. This is very dramatic. You remember the scene where Moses, he goes up on the mountain, up on Sinai, he receives the Ten Commandments and while he's away, Israel gets restless and she makes an idol and she begins to worship the idol so that when Moses comes down off of Sinai and sees what the people are doing, he takes the Ten Commandments, throws them to the ground and shatters them. The covenant didn't even make it off the mountain. God offered himself to his people as their husband, verse 32, and Israel filed for a divorce. God says in exasperation in Jeremiah thirteen twenty-three, it would be easier for a leopard to change her spots than for a person accustomed to doing evil to turn and do any good. The book of Hebrews puts it even more starkly when it says in 719, the law made nothing perfect. You had the law, you had my will, you had the Ten Commandments, and it made nothing perfect. What's to be done? God has done his part. God has initiated the covenant. No one can fault him for not trying. He put humanity in the garden and humanity rebelled against him. He made a covenant with Israel and Israel rejected the terms of the covenant. In every case, God initiates and man resists the love and the grace of God for him. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like this with a kid or a parent or a coworker or a neighbor where No matter how many times you forgive, no matter how many times you offer a second chance, it's just thrown back in your face again and again and again. This really bothered the apostle Peter in his day. He had grown up under religious teachers who taught him that your forgiveness should be lavish. In fact, you should forgive a person four times. Somebody does something against you, you forgive them, you forgive them, you forgive them, you forgive them. them. And so the Apostle Peter, he goes to Jesus and says, look, Jesus, I sense something new is happening since you're here. What if now in your world we forgave somebody seven times? That's almost double what I grew up doing. And of course, Jesus responds, it's not seven times, it's 77 times. In other words, your forgiveness should be as limitless as God's forgiveness. And so I think we're surprised, but we're not surprised that God forgives again. That God kind of puts together the shards of the old covenant that's been broken, and he makes a new and better covenant for us to know and to follow him. Now, Jeremiah, he's prophesying about this covenant, but he couldn't possibly know in his days, 600 years before Jesus would come, that all of these promises would only be achieved when God sent his son, Jesus. We find that out in Hebrews, as the writer to the Hebrews reflects back in chapter eight, verse six. He says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. God takes the old covenant, the broken covenant, the covenant that we had rebelled against, and he makes it new, and he brings about it with better promises, and he seals it in the blood of his son. I just want very briefly to walk through our passage and to see four of those better promises that are true of us as recipients of this new covenant with God. We've got God's law, God's relationship, God's community, and God's forgiveness. Number one, God's law. Look at verse 33. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Now, we need to be careful here because it's kind of easy to fall into this trap. We've all heard this before that if you were an Old Testament believer, you were expected to have kind of this external rote obedience. But if you're a New Testament believer, well, then it's genuine and it's really from the heart. But that's not true at all. God, in both Testaments, old and new, He wanted obedience to spring from the heart. He wanted heartfelt obedience. So the problem was not with the law per se. The problem was with our hearts. The law doesn't change in the new covenant. We still have the Ten Commandments, but what changes in the new covenant is our hearts and our willingness to receive it. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six says, I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. All of a sudden, as New Covenant, New Testament believers, we have hearts of flesh beating in our chests. We have the Holy Spirit who is living inside of us, and now we have today what we didn't have before, and that is a heartfelt, spirit-filled desire to know and obey God. It springs from our heart. It's not from us, it's from what God has given us. Now, I think a lot of times that's hard for us to see as New Testament believers. It's hard to see our own heart and the goodness that God is doing in it because I think a lot of days we wake up feeling like we've got more hearts of stone than hearts of flesh. But sometimes it can be easier to see in another person. You watch another believer and you can testify, that's a heart of flesh. That's the spirit of God living in this person. Uh, I was walking through my living room this past week, and I saw one of my kids sitting in a chair, scribbling on a notepad. I thought they were doodling, and I said, what are you doing? And the child said, I am writing a prayer journal to the Lord. And I about burst into tears, and I thought, you can't enforce this. You can't enforce Jesus journaling in your house. That's just not gonna work to make people do this. You can't obligate obedience from the outside in. God is doing a new thing in which he initiates through a heart of flesh and the spirit within us, obedience that springs from the inside out. That's a new and it's a beautiful thing. A new covenant believer has this desire within them to follow and obey and live for God even when nobody else is watching. That's a benefit of the new covenant. Number two, think about God's relationship. Verse 33 again, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, we're not going to spend time here, but I've, just, I've got to read the announcement that God will give at the end of time when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven onto earth in Revelation 21.3. He seals this promise. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Number three, God's community. Verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Now, I was wrestling with that this week, and I didn't immediately see this, but I had a couple people point this out to me. What's in view here, at least in Jeremiah 31, is not just our personal and our private knowing of the Lord, but our entire community knowing the Lord together. In other words, sometimes we say that people in the uh, New Covenant have a deeper personal relationship with the Lord than people in the Old Coven. In the New Testament, we have free access to God. In the Old Testament, you had to go through the temple. And so we make this kind of caricature of an Old Testament believer and what their relationship with the Lord really looked like. But if you read the book of Psalms, you can see that certainly Old Testament believers had a deep and vibrant and personal relationship with the Lord. So it can't just be that that we're talking about here. What's in view, I think, is not just our personal connection to the Lord, but something that happens in our entire community together. In the church, from the least to the greatest converts in the church will know the Lord. Now, you can define least to greatest however you'd like. You can say it's the loudest in the church or the meekest in the church, the public gifts or the private gifts. You can say those who put themselves first rather than those who serve in the background. But however you slice this thing from the top down, from the missionary to the nursery coordinator, from the elders to the little hearts that gather in juice in Jesus, from those who have the most public gifts, the preacher to those who are the greeters, everyone who is born again will know and trust the Lord. And what does that mean to know the Lord in a community? Jeremiah twenty-two sixteen tells us, to judge the cause of the poor and needy, is this not to know me, declares the Lord. This is what it means for a community to know the Lord. A new covenant community takes mercy really, really seriously. We really, as a community, care about the poor. We care about the widow. We care about the orphan and the refugee. We care about the underserved and the at-risk, and we put tangible resources of time and money and hands and feet to serving such people and by God's grace the mercy that's demonstrated in this church becomes our badge of new covenant community membership you know how i know that columbia presbyterian church is part of the new covenant you know how i know that from the least to the greatest we know the lord Because when I look out over this congregation, I see members who have poured themselves out into our refugee family. When I look out, I see members who are now volunteering to mentor at-risk kids in our city. When I look out, I see members who spend their Saturday evenings driving to strip clubs and giving gifts to the women who serve there. When I look out, I see a hundred stories of mercy that happen on a Sunday morning in this place that I can never tell, that we won't hear this side of heaven, but all together declare the glory of God, because from the least to the greatest, this community, we know the Lord. God is described in Psalm 68.5 as a father to the fatherless, a judge for the widows. Is God in his holy habitation? And we as a church say, yes, that's the God we know. Yes, that's the God we serve and the God we follow. And from the least and the greatest, we are part of that kind of community of mercy, a new covenant community. Number four, lastly, God's forgiveness. Look at verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This is the cornerstone of the new covenant. This is the thing that makes our relationship with God hum: is that God in Christ forgives sins. Now, think about this with me for just a moment. Think about the nature of God and think about the nature of our sin. God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. God is aware of every thought, word, and deed that happens in this earth and every movement within the galaxy. God knows every hair that is on every head in this room and every head that has ever been. God, from where he dwells in his dimension of heaven, he sees even when the smallest sparrow falls. And yet that same all-knowing God says that he has placed the whole of our sin on Jesus. And if you were able to back God into a corner, and say, God, I need to know what you really, really think about my temper, about my impatience with my kids, about my pride, about my selfishness, about my apathy, things that I see in my life every single day and every single hour. I need to know what you really think about those things. God would answer, what temper? What are you talking about? And we would say, God, I see what you're doing here and and I really appreciate that. I mean, I live with this sin day in and day out and it's very sweet that you're saying that you don't remember what clearly I've just done in these past few minutes, even before I came to worship this morning, even as I sit in my seat, I I really respect what you're doing here. And God would interrupt us and say, I'm gonna explain to you how the new covenant works. Okay, this is going to be on my terms. When you trust in Jesus for salvation, I am going to take every thought, every word, every deed that you've done against me in the past that you're doing right now and that you're going to do when you walk out from this room and I'm going to place it on my son and he is going to absorb the wrath of that sin. And then I'm going to take the righteousness of my son, and I am going to place it on you. And when I do that, I do not see sin. I don't see it. I don't remember it. I keep no record of wrongs. There is nothing that can be used against you in an earthly court and a heavenly court. I remember it no more when I see you. I see the righteousness of my son, Jesus, and when I see it, I'm happy. I'm delighted to see that in you as a new covenant believer. I don't remember any of those things. I remember the righteousness of my son, And these things and only these things are the terms of my covenant with you. Let's pray together. Jesus, that is really, really hard to believe. I look at my life and all I see is sin and shortcoming and disappointment. And to hear that you forgive sin and remember iniquity no more places your son at the cornerstone of this covenant and it makes me want to get on my face and worship you and praise you. Let us walk in light of this new covenant, hearts of flesh, called your community, a people of mercy who celebrate sins that are forgiven. Do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.